as uh, Donald was praying there for the new government, um, without making any party political points, I have to say I was particularly grateful to see that a man called John Mason, who's uh, now the SMP MSP for Shettleston, um, was elected. John is a very, very committed Christian, and when he became, first of all, an MP for Westminster, he um, received a great deal of abuse for that, and I met him a month ago and had a long conversation with him about it, and uh, I was very, very encouraged and impressed by him, and I'm delighted for him and for others like Murdo Fraser, the conservative from Perthshire, and others who are believers who we uh, know will honor Christ in the new Scottish Parliament. We pray for uh, all our politicians, and particularly for Mr. Salmond and the new Scottish Government. Uh, Today's just a little bit unusual because we called it Pledge Sunday, and that's just like an awful name, and I apologize for that. Um, We are going to look at Haggai both morning and evening, but we're going to do so in the light of where we are as a a church here in St. Peter's. Now, if you're a visitor and you're you're, you're wondering, okay, wrong day for me to come. Um, No, it's not because it's it's about God's church throughout our country and throughout our world. Um, If you're not a Christian, you're thinking, oh no, what does this mean? Well, again, I think it does apply to you. But I feel a little bit, uh, only in this respect, like Tim Keller, when he spoke to his congregation in New York, and you can get this on podcasts, some brilliant, brilliant sermons on this subject. And after being there a number of years, he spoke on the subject of giving and finance. And he said, in New York, the last thing anyone wants to hear from a preacher is about finance, because people don't like to talk about that. Well, that was postmodern New York. Add to that postmodern and then in Scotland, and it it makes it even more difficult. But I don't really want to talk about money. I actually, though that will come in, I want to talk about where we are as a church and what is happening uh, in our church here Um, what is, I think, reflective of the wider church throughout Scotland. And I want, obviously, to look at what God's Word has to say about that. The question is, what is our vision? Our vision for the church. Is it the same one? If, If I was to do a survey of people here, would we all have different visions? Is it my vision? Is my vision, does my vision matter? What is God's vision? Can we know what God's vision is? In other words, what are God's expectations? What are our expectations? And that's very, very difficult to work out. There's a, I did a, an outreach event up in Aberdeen on Thursday, and there was a woman there who said, but you are asking us to see things through the lens of Jesus. It was very perceptive for a non-Christian to pick this up. You're asking us to see things through the lens of Jesus. She said, I just want to see things through my own eyes. And I said to her, well, that's, that's true. I understand that. But why do you want to do that? She says, because only what I see is real. And because she used the image of lens, I said to her, you know, if I take my glasses off, these are my own eyes. But what I see is not real. What I see is blurred vision of people. I put the glasses on, they correct, and I see the reality. And what we need to do is, yes, we each need to look at our own heart and our own vision and our own understanding, but we need the corrective of God's word, every single one of us. And that's why what we think is so important, because what we think is what we are and determines how we act. 
Our theology matters, our view of God and of sin and of the Bible and of heaven and hell and of the church. In the membership class this morning, we were talking about what the church is and different perceptions that people have of words like reformed or Presbyterian or discipline. And so much of that, it depends the backgrounds from which we come and the perceptions that we have. Now, I don't want to go into the whole history of the church here, and this you can take or leave this analysis, but let me give you a, a, a personal perspective on where I think we've come from in this congregation in St. Peter's. Uh, when Annabelle and I came here, and Andrew and Becky, EJ not even being thought of at that point, uh, we were, that was 19 years ago, and this was a very different place. There are a handful of you here who know that, who know how different it was. Uh, a handful because it was just a handful of people that met in this building that could seat, at that time, 1,000 people. My abiding memory of the day of my induction is a, of a man who's still here with us, Donald McLeod, cleaning out the toilets, as well as being on the door and doing everything else. I've uh, never, ever forgotten that. And Donald and Morag are, are still with us, and we owe a great deal to the handful of people who are still here who've been very, very faithful through all the ups and downs. Bill and Connie and Ken, I think, are probably the only other people here this morning who can go back to those days. But it was an impossible task. What do you do in a building that seats a thousand people that's falling apart when you have so few people, no strength, no numbers, no finance, the first budget... I asked the deacon's court to say it was £10,000 for the whole year, and even that was ridiculously optimistic given the givings of the church. We had very little ability, no magic wand, and yet from the beginning God answered prayer and a pattern was set which I would suggest is still here today, but it's a pattern that's really hard for people to grasp because we are always facing the impossible. People began to visit the church, non-Christians, mixed-up Christians. In fact, in my view, I'm not sure there's any other type of Christian except a mixed-up one, but even the ones who think they've got it together are probably more mixed-up than the mixed-up ones because they think they've got it together. Broken Christians, people who'd been wounded and hurt by the church, pagans, heretics, Catholics, and charismatics. They visited, and some even stayed. Some became Christians. Some were healed and grew Some came as students and stayed on as mature couples. Um, Owen and Natalie will be surprised to hear themselves referred to as a mature couple, but they are a mature couple now. And I I think of several people who are here who were just, I was going to say wet behind the ears, but very, very, very young, even younger than me. Um, Stephen and Isla, Colin and Ruth, Chris and Sarah, Bev and Tim, Risto and Leanne, John and Sonia, um, many others as well who... Uh, came into this church through a variety of means, but they did not come as ready-made, established evangelical families. We've never attracted families. We've had to grow our own, and looking at the list, as we will later on when we pray for the pregnant women, that's been fairly successful recently, but initially it was something that seemed kind of strange. People came from all walks of life with many different views. Uh, From the man who came in and said, I'd like to come to this church, but I don't believe in God. 
right through to people who um, were uh, really way out charismatics, um, people who are quite strong Catholics. Uh, I, I remember even the Muslim man who came because he believed that Allah had told him to come to this church. Uh, or the man who came, my, still my favorite, is the man who came because he met an angel down in the Irish pub uh, who told him to come here, which I thought is one of the best reasons yet. Some came, loved it. Some came, hated it. We had and still have all the problems of the 21st century church. And we have all the difficulties of trying to work out what it is to be the church in today's Scotland. It is a vastly different Scotland to the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s. In recent years, we've even had older people, people over 40, who have started coming, which has been great. But Scotland is incredibly different. You know, um, let me use this analogy because it's current as, a, as, as one. It is utterly astounding for anyone who studied politics to grasp that the SNP have a majority in government. Whether you think it's a good thing or not, it's not the point. But a, the whole system was designed to prevent that happening. And, I mean, I, was in, I lived in Livingston, which they said that if you put a red rosette on a monkey, it would get elected. And it's solidly SNP now. It's just impossible to conceive of. Now, that kind of change is a change that's occurred in the culture in lots and lots of different ways. Uh, morality, general views of morality have changed. Um, you would be shocked and astonished. If you are over 30 years old, you would be shocked and astonished at what teenagers have to go through in school. The morality and the language and everything that is there, it's so vastly different from when uh, we were in school. Over that time, uh, I've heard many pretty constant refrains. Some of them are my own. Um, I, I started listing them. I'm only going to give you a few. I hear people say, we're trying to do too much. We're not doing enough. We need to slow down. We need to speed up. We're not free church enough. We're too free church. What is the free church? We are too small. We're too big. We're a disorganized mess. I love the creative mess. And so on. Now we have about 150 people who attend on a Sunday. I include the children because children are people too. And there are many things that we have so much to be thankful for. There are many strengths. And there are also, of course, many weaknesses. I think there's a danger both of complacency and despair. There is sometimes a wrong view of the church, what we call our ecclesiology. Church is perceived as a place we come to, a place of meetings, rather than a people that we are. There are those who are hardworking, committed, and sacrificial Christians. And that is just wonderful to see. And um, for both myself and Annabelle, sometimes it just astonishes us to see uh, people who show a level of love for the Lord and for his people. But sometimes, let's be honest, there are those who are freeloaders. People who come along expecting to receive something and never really thinking of giving. And I'm Scottish, but I have to say there's a particular Scottish aspect to this that's grown up in our culture. Maybe we call it the Scottish cringe, but it is certainly a view that I feel happens a lot in our culture where people feel the world owes me a living. And, you know, that, they apply that. That comes across in, in, in Christian terms as well. 
The injunction of the Apostle Paul, work hard with your own hands so that you can give to those who are in need. It's not one that comes easily to us. I think that um, Mary uh, gave me a real shock about three or four weeks ago when I, I have no idea who gives what, but we were looking at the church's financial situation and she showed, told me, without naming individuals, that in a congregation of this size, there are 24 people who regularly give. And what that means is three in four people don't. And that's a, a, that's, that was a difficult thing for me to grasp and to get hold of. Now, the trouble is that what happens is the first lot get frustrated. That is, people who are hardworking, committed, and sacrificial Christians sometimes get really frustrated because they carry too much and they get weary in well-doing. The second get frustrated because no matter how much they take, it's never enough. There always should be something more. And then um, frustration is almost like the order of the day because what happens is I think we take our eyes off the ball and because in the church here we have a very, very high view of the word of God and thus a very high view of the church, it means that that can be quite disturbing for people. I understand this completely. Uh, Well, maybe not completely, but I I certainly understand it a lot and empathize with it. But this is a very difficult church to belong to because if you perceive the church as being a place of comfort that helps you get on with the real world, then this is not a good church. Because people who want that want a place where they are not disturbed, where they get stirred up but not shaken too much. And yet, for me, that's impossible for the church in the context we are in, because we are not in a playground, we are not in a holiday home, we are in the midst of an incredible battle. And that means we have to have guts, it means we have to be spiritually strong, we have to have spiritual backbone, and we have to realize it's not about us. Now take this year as an example. I think this has been an extraordinary year. For me personally, I would argue in 19 years, we've never known such blessing and we've never known such spiritual opposition. And that's why this Sunday I'm asking you both this morning and this evening to consider your relationship with God, your relationship and role within the church here or whatever church you belong to if you're a visitor. It's not just about finance, although that's a major part. Why? Because it's a major part of your life. It's about everything. And I also am desperate that this not be seen as some kind of nag or guilt fest or whatever. Um, it's always difficult as a Christian to uh, teach in that way because, or as a pastor to teach because that's the almost self-defense mode that we get into. And I don't want it to be that. The whole theme of this day has to be what Paul tells the Corinthian. God loves a cheerful giver. Someone who gives not reluctantly or under compulsion, but from a cheerful heart, giving in response to God's great gift to us, his son, Jesus Christ. If you serve because you love Jesus, it's so much easier. If you serve because you're afraid or because you're driven by guilt or driven by fear, then you'll just get really worn out and really frustrated and really hurt, actually. So I want us to go to Haggai and to see what God had to say to the church. I think a really similar situation. Um, We'll look through it fairly quickly, 
And I want to read, first of all, the first six verses. Haggai is on page 948 of the Pew Bible. The words are also up on the screen. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. God's people expected blessing, as they rightly should. They expected to harvest, to be full, to be warm, and to have money. They expected the rain to fall. Psalm 65, say this psalm today, if you're moaning about the rain, you should... uh, Donald was right in his prayer. We should be so thankful for the rain. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with corn. For so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. And God's people expected that. They expected to have grain, to have wine, to have oil, and whatever the ground produces. They expected blessing on their animals and on their people. But... At Haggai's time, the harvest had failed. There were 50,000 of them. There was no Tesco, no Asda. The land should have produced a bumper crop because it had lain fallow for 67 years. The minerals had had time to build up in the soil, and this, after all, was the promised land, the land of milk and honey. They'd done the right thing in the right way, but the harvest was dreadful. Verse 9 says, what you brought home, I blew away. God had blown it away. In Malachi 1 verse 3, you say, what a burden, says the Lord. You sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? The food did not satisfy their hunger. The drink did not quench their thirst. They had drunk, but it was not a pleasing experience. They had money. In those days, there were wedges or discs of copper and silver which had to be weighed, not minted coins. They lived in paneled houses. They earned wages, but the money had lost its value, inflation having a spiritual origin. The drought even extended to the Jew in fulfillment of the prophecy of Deuteronomy 28. In Israel, it barely rained from May to October, and so the Jew was absolutely essential. And the Jew was especially necessary in August and in September when it was needed to prevent the ripening grain from wilting in the heat. And the Jew wasn't there. The people were discontented and they were not satisfied. I think that it's not too much to say we can apply that spiritually. We live in a country which is, there's a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And we live in a church, we're part of a church where um, we expect God to bless and we want God to bless us and yet at times we have this spirit of complaint because it's not happening. Why is it? Why is it not happening? We ask the Lord. Well, verses 9 to 11, tell us why. 
let me sorry, let me read from verse 7 to 11 rather. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oils, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Why? God called for a drought. The people are under a curse. Again, if you read the whole of Deuteronomy 28, you'll see where this stems from. Part of the curse was that the people did not realize what was happening. I think sometimes we fail to recognize God's hands in our trouble. Not all disaster is because of sin. As in direct consequences, you know, you do something bad and God sends a tsunami to your country. That's not how it works. But sin does have consequences. In Micah 6.15, Jeremiah 18, and numerous other passages, we see what is involved. Human pride and self-sufficiency is reduced by the simple act of God withholding the rain. And the reason for the curse that they were under in Haggai's time, and I think, personally, the reason for the lack of spiritual blessing that there is in Scotland today is because God's own people have forgotten God's house. There's a play on words. You'll see it there on the screen. Two words. Hareb is the word for temple ruin, and Horeb is the word for drought. Just a simple change. The Hebrew lettering is the same. Uh, it's what they call the pointing, where you get the vowels from. There's just a tiny, tiny change, and there's a deliberate play on words. Because you've allowed my house to become Horeb, says God, you're experiencing Hareb. You're experiencing drought. They were living in paneled houses. They said, look, they just come back from exile. They were saying, before we can make a start on God's house, we need a place to live in ourselves. This isn't so much affluence versus poverty as apathy versus attention. They weren't anti-God. They, they, they would have accepted what they knew of the Bible. They would have gone along to their services. They would have kept the Sabbaths. They would have done the sacrifices and so on, the great festivals. They knew that they were the people of God. But their attention was given more to their own selves and their own homes. Where did the timber come from for building their houses? Many commentators believe that in actual fact it was a stockpile that was set apart for the temple. And they just took it because the time for building the temple will come later. It's too much just now. It's too quick. We've got to get on. We've got to look after ourselves. And then when we've established ourselves, we will build the temple of God. And so they were robbing God. That's the... Malachi, a famous passage, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? What do Christians say? What do you mean return? We're here. Will a man rob God, says God, yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, 
and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. They were robbing God. And I think we do that. I'm not talking just about money. I'm talking about time. I'm talking about us giving to God what's left over in our lives. But we live in a culture which doesn't allow us to have leftovers. And it's no wonder that we get frustrated. It's no wonder that we get worn out. I'm reading a a really good book just now, which I really need to read, called Working from a Place of Rest, which to me is just an absolutely stupid title, but it's making a whole lot of sense. We need to be really, really careful what we are doing. William Carey put it wonderfully. We are to expect great things from God, and we are to attempt great things for God. They expected great things from God, but they weren't prepared to attempt great things for God. Now, here's a wonderful thing about grace. I I do hear this a lot, and forgive me for saying this, but I, I find this so discouraging and dispiriting when people say, it's too big. We can't do it. I, I have to say, duh, that's obvious. Of course we can't do it. We're talking about something here that's eternal and that's massive and that's way beyond. We need to be people who have a great, great vision and great expectation from God. But we can't just have great expectation if we ourselves are not prepared to attempt great things for God. And this is the wonderful thing about grace is God allows you to fail. For me, it has always been an enormously liberating thing to know that God allows you to fail. It really sets you free in so many ways. God, people had forgotten God's house. So what could be done about it? Verses 4, 7, and 8, I've already read them. Three things, consider. We are to think about events in the light of God's word. It's a challenge about our priorities. The temple there was a ruin. It had been destroyed by fire by Nebuchadnezzar. The people worked hard. That wasn't wasn't the case that they were lazy, but they were working hard in their roofed and paneled houses. Does God want us to live without roofs and paneled houses? No. But it's a question of priorities. Why neglect the house of God? You know, you learn a lot about a church, even a church building, by looking at the building. I went to preach in a church in Kirkcaldy, and it was dirty. The outward sign, you could hardly read it. Nobody had bothered with it. It would have cost about 20 quid to put the sign right in those days. Nobody bothered. Do you know what that sign said to everybody who walked past? It's not really important to us. We don't care. It's like your house. If, if, if I went into your house, now I'm not the tidiest person in the world. Okay, I fully accept that. But if I went into your house... And there were cups there that hadn't been washed for two weeks. Even by my standards, that's a bit much. You know, it it says something to me about you. It says something to me about how you care for things. If your kids are grubby and their clothes are not washed. If your house is filthy. And it's, God is kind of turning that analogy around and he's saying, look at my house. Look what's going on. Now, not just, obviously, not just talking about the building, but talking about how we care for and how we look after one another. Perhaps, as Calvin says, the people here thought we'd been many years without a temple. Maybe God's just satisfied with the way things are. I think a lot of us think we just need to carry on with the way things are before we fall apart. You know, we've been like that for a while. And we can't. We can't. We have to keep progressing. We have to keep moving. We have to keep going forward. 
remember many years ago, a lovely man saying to me, um, David, when are we going to stop changing? And my answer was, I hope never, never. Because every new person God brings in changes the church. It's just not. It's not the same. Things keep changing because God keeps working. Perhaps the people here reasoned we can start building without counting the cost. Or, sorry, we can start building without counting the cost. We can't go rushing into things. And, of course, there's a wisdom in that. We do need to count the cost. But the church in Scotland has been crippled for years by the syndrome which says, we can't do it, we can't do it, we can't do it. Perhaps they reasoned, we're not yet ready, we're not yet wealthy enough, we're not yet strong enough. Will we ever be? I think we need to consider our ways. And we need to construct, verse 8, go and build my house, collect the timber from the hills. There's a repentance there because obedience indicates repentance. They are no longer to be apathetic and indifferent. The wood was needed because layers of wood were set in stone walls to minimize earthquake damages. 1 Kings 5, 13 to 18 shows they had to go up into the hills to get it. Solomon used conscripted labor. Haggai said, I want volunteers. We can't conscript people. We don't have the power. We don't have soldiers. We're not rich. We have to volunteer. Do you know one of the curses in the church in Scotland today is this, is that everyone's so busy out doing stuff that as Christians, we want to employ people to do the spiritual stuff for us. But churches are not big enough or rich enough or powerful enough to do that generally. And so we have to work. We have to do it together. It's what God desires surely for his people today. Again, 1 Corinthians 3, from verse 9 to 17, we are called to build up his church. Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We are to consider and we are to construct. We are to think about what in our lives is displeasing to God that grieves the spirit and holds up his work. See, I have to do that. In a sense, it's different for me, I suppose, because you could say it's my job. But it's not about it being a job. It's about being part of the church. And you pray, Lord, if there's any offensive way in me, if there's anything that's holding up your work. I honestly think as a minister, the most important prayer you can almost pray is don't let me get in the way of your work. The church is not about us. It's about God being at work. It's about God bringing glory to himself. Matthew six thirty one. Don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I think personally in a, in a pastoral capacity that I've seen more people crippled by worry than by anything else. It is probably the devil's strongest weapon after pride. Maybe pride is the most crippling. But worry is another one. We are, some of us are angst-driven people. And we have to learn, no, no, we can't be crippled like that. And so the solution we find, first of all, in verses 12 to 13. 
We listened to God. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatul, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. Here's important. First of all, the leaders listened. And you must pray for me and for the other elders and for the deacons that we listen to God. When, I'm in, when you're in a position like I am where I'm teaching people, there is an incredible danger that I talk and don't listen, especially to God. And you must pray that that is not the case. We must listen to God. God thought highly of Zerubbabel and of Joshua. If you read Zechariah 6, the remnant of the people returned. I think today there is a remnant of people who are willing to listen to God and to obey Him. They feared the Lord. That's what we want. Not people who are afraid of the circumstances, afraid of economics, afraid of the government, afraid of the devil, afraid of lots of different things, afraid of ill health and so on. But people who have an awe and a respect for God that says, whatever happens, I'm going to do what God says. When a people fear the Lord and love the Lord, they have a desire to please Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow His precepts of good, have good understanding. To Him belongs eternal praise. Psalm 111, verse 10. And then God speaks. They have someone to listen to. Haggai's message was authentic because it came from God. Because of the curse, they might have expected, you're doomed. But because God cursed them with drought, he spoke to them and said, I'm with you. It seems a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction. God's curse is not a sign that God has rejected his people. Rather, it shows his love for them. And sometimes what God has to do with us is drive us to a point where we're on our knees, where we're in tears, where we are confused and hurt and wounded, and we just say, I can't do a thing. I don't know what to do. And God says, at last, you're where you're supposed to be. You should have known that. You should have known. Of course you can't do it. What arrogance for you. What arrogance for this church. What arrogance for us to think that we can do anything without God. What makes all the difference is the presence of God. That's the only thing that matters. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Isaiah 43, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Lord, there's this, we're, in this, we're in this fire. We're in this drought. We're about to drown. All the different metaphors and images all getting mixed up, but all just saying we're in trouble, and God says, that's great, because I'm with you. I'm with you. I am with you all the time. And we need to grasp that, to get God's message. And then verse 14 and 15, this is what happens. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. There is evidence of God being with them. There's a stirring. As they humbly obeyed God's, work, God's word and started work, God helped them. 
you know, if you're a Christian and you're apathetic to the word of God, if it doesn't stir you and if it doesn't move you, you might as well be an atheist. It's practical atheism. 23 days after Haggai gave his first message, the work on the temple had begun again in October 520 BC. We have to stop waiting for God to bless us, and instead we have to work according to what God has already told us to do in anticipation that the blessing will come. I think there's a much, much wider application that comes in Matthew 28. Jesus came to them, to the disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And if that was it, we're stuffed. If God comes to us and says, you go to all nations, you go to all the streets of Dundee, you go to the poor, you go to the kids, you go to um, those who are gay, you go to the Muslims, you go to everybody, and you, you teach them, and you baptize them, and you bring Christ to them, we just look and we go, that's impossible. That's absolutely impossible. Except for that last line, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's it. That line changes absolutely everything. So whilst we are not to be stupid and idiotic and use it as use that line as some kind of that idea as some kind of justification for uh, our self-aggrandisement and for just ignorance. Nonetheless, it does mean that we collectively individually have to look and say, you know, God calls us to do something that's impossible. And yet, he's going to be with us. So that's how we do it. Going back just to when we came here, one visitor to the church came in and he saw the handful of people. And he saw the building. He said, can I have a word? I said, yes, you can have a word. He said, um, what are you going to do? What's your plan? Who are you going to aim for? And this should come as a surprise to most of you. It shouldn't come as a surprise to most of you. I said, I have no idea. I have no plan. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, I, I'm, I, all I've got, to be honest, is I'm going to teach the Bible and see what happens. And he just looked at me and just shook his head. And then he said, if that works, it would be a miracle. I said, well, that's the point, isn't it, really? There's nothing else. That is the point. With the assurance that Christ will be with us, with the challenge that God gives to us, I'm just asking each of us here, if we are Christians, are we willing to pledge all that we have and all that we are to serve him and to see his kingdom extended? I'm not asking about pledging 10% of your income to the church. That's the wrong way around. The right way around is to say everything. Everything I've got, Lord, is for you. And whether I'm buying things that are for my family or whether I'm giving time that's for my family or I'm giving time that's for other people. It's just all tied in. If your vision is Christ, then it's no problem. If your vision is anything else or anyone else, then it is absolutely impossible. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk.
That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.